that button right there. Yeah, good. How about that? Thank you for reminding me to do that. But it is. It's uh, so very good to see you today. And uh, we just, again, we have enjoyed ourselves immensely because of the opportunities that uh, you have afforded us, Vicki and me, to be able to come out and be with you here and uh, to, again, be able to enjoy the hospitality of a lot of folks and grateful for the Lewises and their home. And we just had such a wonderful time yesterday as well and uh, gathering together and, and uh, just uh, really are appreciative of that. And it was a remarkable thing to get back uh, to the Lewis's place yesterday afternoon uh, only to discover that we indeed had water. <laughs> and uh, uh, bless you. And uh, uh, Mark uh, said that uh, he was there talking to the electrician. It's amazing what a ladybug can do, huh? For those who have wondered, that's just between the contacts, a ladybug just shot everything down. But uh, anyway, Carrie, I guess, had given the electrician quite a hug. It got fixed. And <laughs> anyway, but we're just... Uh, Great to be here this morning, a beautiful, beautiful morning, and we have been spending our time, obviously, uh, since Friday evening, talking about the essence of Christ-centered uh, commitment, and I'll tell you, a lot of what we've been dealing with has been dealing with attitude, but it's also been dealing with action, and putting into implementation, if you will, the very things that God has given to us uh, within His Word the way the Lord has designed His church and what Christianity is to look like, and that I want to say to you that in so many respects, the Christianity is something that needs to be viewed as being very pragmatic, very practical. There are a lot of academics and a lot of things of which you might look at Christianity and the teachings of the Bible of being somewhat, you know, what, almost intellectual or things that you can study. It's knowledge, things that you need to know. But one of the things that we've tried to stress, and we'll continue to do so as we bring the, this series to a conclusion this day, is that without the employment of the application, or what we might even refer to as the execution, which we're going to be talking about a little bit later, uh, without doing that, then it really becomes meaningless. It really does become meaningless. But one of the things that I wanted to deal with, as we shall do so in this first session, and I do not know who originally uh, said this, but I think all of us have probably heard this, perhaps me, maybe even said it ourselves, that if something is worth doing, it's worth doing well. And I think that's really a true principle that kind of transcends a lot of areas or venues or subjects in life. And it doesn't make any difference if it's referring to education, if it's referring to vocation, and certainly if it's referring to our religion, our faith. And there are many things that God wants us to do, and I just want to say to you, if it's something that's worth doing, and it'll be worth doing, if it's what God has laid out for us, is it not worth doing well to try to do the very best that we can? There was a Gnostic philosopher, and not that I'm a big fan of the Gnostic philosophers, and particularly the, the first few centuries A.D., but Epictetus did make a particular statement that I think is worthy of notice, and he was a fellow that lived from about 55 to 135 A.D., and so this kind of takes us even to the latter part of the primitive New Testament church and going on into the second century. But there he said, one that desires to excel should endeavor in those things that are in themselves most excellent. 
Now, I think there's a lot of good about that sentiment that's being stated. You see, because I believe that there are too many people in the world today who only excel in areas that do not prepare them for eternity. Now, those areas in and of themselves may not be wrong or sinful. But my point is, if we only excel, let's suppose that in our education, or we only excel in our vocation or job, or we only find ourselves excelling in areas that are very interesting to us, it may be hobbies or things that just have a great, that take a great amount of our time and, and our interest, and there's nothing wrong with, in and within itself to excel in these various areas, and again, they may not be sinful, but if we find ourselves taking the time, taking the energy, sometimes taking the finances, to excel in these areas, to become the very best at whatever that area may be, and that's kind of it, which becomes the sum total of our life, and we're not excelling in spiritual matters in a relationship with God, then we've grossly fallen short of what certainly God expects of us and certainly what we should, particularly as Christians, expect of ourselves. The most important issues of life, in fact, the most important issue of life, is a right relationship with God, a proper relationship with God without question. And I think all of us are very familiar with the closing statement we find in this book of wisdom, the book of Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, and, and I've gone ahead and taken the liberty of, of put up there and kind of put this together early this morning because I know that there are a good number of you that were using the New King James Version of the Bible. But, but where the wise man says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter and understand the whole matter of which he addresses is life. This is what he's looked at. And he takes throughout the book a very purposeful, cynical view of life. Very cynical because what Solomon is trying to do, even exploring upon his own life, and I, I'm an optimist. I want to believe that the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, is his book of repentance. I want to believe that. But the point is, is that if there was an individual that understood the futility of living life for itself and just trying to explore and experience life without God at the center, what did he call that? Vanity. Vanity of vanity. Emptiness, futility. So after giving forth these incredible remarks and argumentation, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. That is, the old King James says that this is, this is the, the whole duty of man. It's man's all. The very reason, purpose, the essence of our existence is to do what? To fear God, to reverence Him, to respect Him, and to keep His commandments. Why? Because it's very causative, and there's accountability. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. I'll tell you, we cannot appreciate enough how important it is to be Improper relationship with God. Now, as we continue, therefore, to explore in the essence of Christ-centered commitment, I want to suggest to you that as we've been looking at these various principles, that I also believe this is important to recognize that Christ-centered commitment is excellence. That is, we have this responsibility, and let me just put it this way, 
and using the words of the Apostle Paul, as I'm going to put on in a moment, is this whole endeavoring, this, this desire for us to seek to excel as Christians. To excel. And this is so important. And I, I call your attention, and I realize that there's a, a very important context to 1 Corinthians 14. But as the Apostle Paul is dealing with the regulations of the miraculous spiritual gifts, in 14, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he enumerates the nine spiritual gifts. So we have enumeration. In chapter 13, in 1 Corinthians, he deals with the duration, how long they were going to last because they would be coming to an end. And then in chapter 14, he deals with the regulation that while they were in existence, particularly in six times of fine, in chapter 14, he speaks about the church or in the church, that when these gifts were being used or employed in the church, they were to be regulated. Remember, if there was to be somebody speaking in tongues, there had to be somebody there to interpret. If there was to be a prophet, there had to be two or three other prophets so that every word could be judged. There were regulations. Even though there were women who could speak in tongues and could prophesy at times, they were not permitted to do that within the assembled church. And he addresses that. There were regulations, regulations. But what really stands out to me that really has great applications in every aspect or area of our being Christians is the statement that he makes in verse 12 of chapter 14. He says, since you are eager to those Corinthians, <coughs> contextually, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, in which they were, he says, strive to excel in building up the church. You know, there sadly was kind of a competitive thing that seemed to be going on. And some said, well, I have this gift. Well, I have this gift. And maybe some didn't even have any spiritual miraculous gifts. And there may have been this competitive spirit. We know that Corinth was riddled with, with division and problems. Practically every chapter in 1 Corinthians deals with some issue or problem, right? And Paul has to, to address that. But what he keeps coming back to is how important it is for the congregation, for the church there, to do those things that are going to build up, edify. Edify one another, build up one another. And I just love that language in which he uses, strive to excel in building up the church. And brethren, I believe that we need to try to seek excellence as the body of Christ, individually, collectively, but that we need to seek to excel. The fact is, is that we never want to be satisfied with mediocrity. And in the final lesson, the third lesson that we'll have later this morning, I'm going to really deal with the problem of mediocrity, of being a mediocre Christian. But as we look at this, this defies that very idea of being satisfied with mediocrity. No, seek to excel. More to say about that later, as I, as I just stated. But we've got to strive for the potential of which God has given us. And I'm telling you, every one of us have our unique potentials. We don't all have the same abilities, the same talents. We don't all have the same opportunities. But we have ability, we have talent, we have opportunity. And every one of us sitting here has potential. Potential as workers for the Lord, as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we look at this and it should be our desire to achieve spiritual excellence. You know, you hear what Jesus says, and I just have the cross references there, and we're reminded in Matthew 5.20, and indeed Jesus does raise the bar, and Mark and I are talking about this, and you see this in the Sermon of the Mount, because the rabbinical teachings and the rabbinical traditions of the Jews historically had just corrupted the law, and you'll find six times in Matthew 5 that Jesus says 
You have heard that it was said. Notice he never said, you have read what was written. He says, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. Jesus isn't really changing the law. He's taking them back to the original intention of the law that had been so badly corrupted by the rabbinical teachings and by the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrisy. So what does he say in Matthew 5 and verse 20? For I say to you that unless, listen to it, you know this, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, he wanted them to understand if you think you're just going to kind of settle in and do like the scribes and the Pharisees or what they say and then their, their butchering of, of the law in principle, or if you think that you can just be kind of satisfied with the bare minimum, Jesus said you don't understand what righteousness is. He continued to challenge at the end of that chapter 5 and verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Not sinless perfection, that's not, no, that's not any of us. Is there anybody here today that is sinless, absolutely perfect because we have no mistakes, no sins, no flaws? Nobody's going to raise their hand, right? I'm not going to because we're all very flawed. So when Jesus talks about this, being perfect in the sense of spiritual maturity, one of the most common Greek phrases, Jesus used it, Paul used it, uh, I, I tell you, and it just continuously, to tell us, to tell us. And it's the idea of completion, yes, perfection but the idea of maturity and it does take us to excellence so i there's just a few areas that i want us to deal with in this these areas of spiritual excellence that i think are very important by the way and and what, what time should i about a quarter tail is that when i'm supposed to finish that all right so i promise you that uh, we'll finish when i'm finished but anyway no I, we can we can do that so the very first thing that i want us to think about then in all of this is that excellence in attitude. And as I said in the beginning, and I said this on Friday, and I said this yesterday, here I am saying it again, how much of this is about attitude? I, I know some of you are going to probably be saying, you know, that once Brett and Vicky get on, get on the plane, which Vicky's really looking forward to, and getting on the plane and, and heading back home, you know, you're going to say, man, that guy sure had a lot to say about attitude. You probably Maybe you're wondering about my attitude. But, but I cannot say enough that we need to excel in our attitude. Attitude. And we're going to look at some of these areas. But this is where it all begins. Attitude, attitude, attitude. It's all about attitude. In fact, the subsequent points that we're going to be looking at, and I'll just tell you the preview is this. Excellence in purity and excellence in sacrifice. But I want to say to you that purity and sacrifice even those become meaningless or of no real value if our attitude is not right. No matter what you may believe, and even if we do something that seems to be good, but we don't do it with the right attitude, is that really going to be something that, that will please God? We know better than that. You see, disciples of Christ, turn over to Philippians chapter 2, if you would please. Philippians chapter 2. And have you noticed that since Friday, we've been doing a lot of camping in the book of Philippians? We have. We have spent a lot of time in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and have alluded a few times to chapter 4 as well. But in what, what we look at this is as Christians, as disciples of Christ, do we not endeavor to be like him? So often people say, what does the word Christian mean? And I mean, I realize that it's... it's, it's it's an appellative, it's, a, it's this name that we're wearing, the name of Christ, but so many times people say, well, to be Christ-like. And, and I get that, and that makes sense, sense to me. And we want to endeavor to be like him. 
And you'll notice in Philippians chapter 2, beginning of verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, your translation says, let this mind be in you as was in Christ Jesus. It'll use the word mind. It can use the word attitude, depending again on, on the translations. The New King James certainly says mind. But have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's his humility. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which, ever, which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that is the realm of the dead, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Boy, you talk about minds. There have been a lot of great minds that existed historically. You know, I mean, we look at the mind of an Albert Einstein, or, you know, you look at the mind uh, of, of Thomas Edison, you look at the mind of, of, of Alexander the Great, you look at these minds, these remarkable minds that are those today, too, and, and that are people that are just brilliant and smart and say, you know, well, I'm no Albert Einstein. But here the, here's the Lord saying, the Apostle Paul saying, that we're to put on the mind of Jesus. When we look at this, understand that, and appropriately, appropriately, the New American Standard, the today's English version, and the NIV as well, translate phreneo. Phreneo is the word there. It's used a good amount of times in the New Testament, phreneo. But it, when you think about it, it, it is the idea of an attitude. It is to be minded in a certain way. Vine says implies moral interest or reflection, not mere unreasoning opinion. You know, what's your mindset, what's your demeanor, what is your attitude? And we think about the attitude, the mindset of Jesus, of his demeanor. We're never going to possess the superior intellectual ability of Christ. You know, whenever I think about what God you know, knows, I, it's never a matter of what God believes. You know, sometimes they'll say, but God is faithful. It doesn't mean God has faith in something, that just means he's dependable, Right? He's dependable. And I, and I remind folks all the time that God doesn't believe anything. He knows everything. There's a big difference. A big difference. We might very much have to have a belief system. We're not going to have the superior intellectual ability of Christ. We know who he is and what he did. But we can and we must possess his attitude. And that's why we read passages such as this. And so when we look at this, indeed, it's an attitude of humility. That he humbled himself, the writer says. Well, that's what we are to do. You know, in, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, Paul addresses that. He says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Thank you very much whoever was insightful to do that. Probably started with my wife, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, but uh, look at it again. Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God allotted to each a measure of faith. You know what? We all have limitations, and none of us are as smart as what we probably think we are at times. 
but not to think more highly than himself than he ought to think. This is humility. I look at it, and we're going to be talking about this later on too. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up in James 4. But humility, humility, it's an attitude. And if we're going to excel in, our, in, our, in, 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 in just being Christians in our commitment to Christ, then I tell you what, this excellence needs to be seen in our attitude. You go back, though, to Philippians 2, and, and you find that not only did Jesus excel in this remarkable, humble disposition that he always possessed, but then what about servitude? You see, taking upon himself the form of a bond servant, the servant. You know, how many times that Jesus say that, you know, that, that, that I did not come to be served, but to serve. I mean, and he, he showed that in his life over and over again of how he served. And I think one of the greatest examples, I just put John 13 because we know that a good part of that chapter in John 13 is Jesus is in the upper room and the disciples are coming in as they're coming in. And Jesus says, what has he done? He's prepared himself. He's girded himself. There's a basin of water with towels. And what's Jesus doing as the disciples are coming in? Washing their feet. Washing their feet. And then we look at that situation where Peter comes in and says, you're not going to wash my feet. And he makes it very clear to him, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have nothing to do with me. And Peter gets it. He connects the dots and he says, then wash my whole body. But what is it that Jesus was showing them? He says in the text, as you have seen that I have done. And are these apostles even going to be put in places of great position of authority? Absolutely. But he wants them to remember, your servants and brethren, that's how we've got to look at it. I don't care how knowledgeable we are, how talented we are, how long we've been a member of the congregation. It doesn't make any difference about that. Let there be humility and let there be servitude. That's what Jesus did. Follow his example. He taught us how to be humble. He taught us how to serve. And then going back to Philippians 2, he obeyed to what extent? Even death on the cross. He came to do the will of his Father. They took him to the cross. I appreciate the prayer we had a little while ago. That's what Christ was willing to do. God's love indeed put him there, but Christ had this willingness to do it. I, I love the sentiment. Again, I can say a hearty amen to that prayer. Because we look at him and he taught us what it meant to be obeyed, to obey. You know, we're familiar with, with Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author, that is the source of eternal life unto all who obey him. He taught us. He taught us humility, servitude, obedience. And did he teach us about love? Oh, my. Everything that he did was dictated by the truest principles of agape, the truest principles of love. And then I think of Colossians 3.14. Yeah, I have that up there. In Colossians 3.14, when Paul makes this appeal to the brethren in Colossae, in Colossians 3.14, he says, Beyond all these things, and he says, this is an appeal to them, it's a charge. It's an exhortation. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. I'll tell you, we need to be unified. We need to be in unity, I should say, in a lot of things. And when it comes to our serving God and being of one mind in worship and one mind in doctrine, we get all of that. But I tell you what, it all has to be, it all has to be in so many respects undergirded 
by love. Because if we don't really truly display love for each other, no matter how much we believe truth and how much we are willing to debate truth and no matter what that may be, if we're not learning how to love one another and all that that means and looks like, and all we have to do is look at the example of Jesus. Love is giving, love is sacrificial. And I'll tell you, he talks about this beautiful principle perfected in the bond of unity. That's excellence and attitude. Now, there are so many things of which we can talk about this commitment to excellence, but I want to move on. And as we think about that, let me suggest to you next that obviously in this world, and we live in, as I said yesterday, a very corrupt, a very broken world, and there needs to be there needs to be excellence and purity. Of all people, should not Christians just this is just so axiomatic. It should go without saying, but I found out the things that should go without saying saying sure need to be said a lot. You know what I mean? And that we should be people that exhibit excellence. Hey, misspelled. The left out of C. Did you see that, Miss Carrie? But anyway, we need to be excellent in purity. Okay? I try to I should have Vicky proofread these. But anyway. But I I want you to be thinking about a a, a few things as we're talking about moral, ethical, and religious purity. And and this is so important. And and, and you see again, and I want to say that society is saturated in impurity. We have become inundated. We really have. Inundated with every imaginable, you know, corruption, turpitude, whatever you want to call it, morally, ethically, and religiously. It's, it, it, it's, it's horrific. It, it's ridiculous. Moral f- filth. In fact, I, I think the moral filth that exists in our society that seems to become more and more aggravated, it's a type of putrefaction that finds its way into every medium possible. Where is it not found? TV, motion pictures, music, literature, and without question, the internet. And from the blatant exposure, the blatant exposure, availability to unrestricted pornography, to the subtle political agendas that wish to, and not so subtle anymore, it's not subtle anymore, but wish to legitimize, well, homosexuality. You know, you see the graphic portrayals of uh, of, of, of the sinful lifestyles within Scripture, and people just kind of just kind of put that to the side. You know, the Apostle Paul makes this point you would find in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11, and there he tells the brethren in Ephesus, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of things which are done by them in secret. And I'll tell you, the things that are done in the dark, the things that are done in secret, the moral filth that exists, and along with that, the ethics. What happened to ethics? What happened to ethics, you know, in business? What happened to this, the idea of, of truly having an ethical standard? Ethics have become at best relative and situational. They've been saying that about, you know, about these, these, these sitcoms. And, and I'll tell you what, they're, they're, they're nothing more than, than, than really these this ethical sitcoms that, you know, well, you look at this and say, you know, there's a lot of situations where the best thing you can do is probably just lie, right? People do it. Uh, I, 
story after story. I, I bet you, Mark, you have a few things you could be saying about ethics in business, huh? I'll tell you, it's amazing. All of us have been there. And I just know this one situation. Guy was just caught of what he was doing and how he was cheating people of all places, a tire business and so forth. And he finally told one of his competitors, who said, well, hi, who was a very ethical individual, and, 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 he, and he called him upon, and he says, well, you know what, it's just how we all do business. You hear this over and over and over. Honesty, which was once a hallmark of one's character, is now chided as being out of touch with the real world, a world that a Christian should find repulsive. Is how we, we should find it. Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Presenting things honest in the sight of all men, I believe the King James Version puts it. But putting before others that which is honorable in the sight of all. That's morally upright. You're all familiar with Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, by the way, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You see, excellence in purity. Then how about religious purity? You know, well, before we get that, in fact, I wanted to make one other point as I'm looking at this. I got to get back to this because this kind of deals with both morality and ethical behavior. And brethren, that's just the way we talk, our speech, and making sure that we do not relax the standards that we know to be godly. Because I believe that purity demands that our speech must be morally and ethically upright. And to talk like the world talks. I'll tell you what that'll do. Well, that'll disassociate us as being identified with Christ. And I think a a very sad example of that was Peter. Remember, when Peter denied Jesus those three times, remember that. But a very interesting statement is made in Mark's account about that. And I think I have, yes, Mark 14 and at verse number 71. That as she said, well, you're one of him, you know, that... That, that, that you look at this and even your very, you know, your demeanor, your language shows that you were one of him. And what does it say in Mark fourteen seventy one in reference to Peter? But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man whom you speak. I mean, we can disassociate ourselves with Christ just by the way that we talk. Our attitude in it, the words that we use. You know, and say, well, yeah, but I'm in a job in a situation. This is just how everybody talks. No, this is not what Christians are to do. Violations of pure speech have no place in the lives of those who are seeking spiritual excellence. And that's the importance of a passage like Colossians uh, 3, 8, and 9, by the way. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old man, the old self, with its practices. But then finally, as we look at this point, I do want to take us to religious impurity. You see, religious impurity is as reprehensible as the previous two. A lot of people don't look at it that way. They well, you know, we have a lot of leeway when it comes to, you know, faith and doctrine. All I can say, brethren, is that which seeks to justify 
inappropriate behavior under the guise of open-mindedness will be met with the same disdain that God displayed towards the religious philosophies of men. And you, you think about that of statements that are made, but but there's one, and I don't think, know if I have the, the reference up there, but you may want those that are taking notes, put this down, because it made me think of Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. So in Colossians 2 and verse 8, we just looked at Colossians 3 a moment ago, but in Colossians 2 and verse 8, it says, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There are a lot of people that have been taken in by bad teaching, by bad doctrine. Do people really believe that this kind of relaxed, very comfortable, laissez-faire approach to religion is going to somehow escape the attention, the notice, and the ultimate judgment of God? No way. We've got to understand that. Will the so-called evangelical churches of the denominational world ever come to terms with authority-based Christianity that respects the scriptures in terms of worship and the gospel and the salvation. When Jesus says, for example, in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. For many will come to me in that day and in that day say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonderful works in your name, then will I profess or say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice anomia, animos, lawlessness, that which has no authority, you who practice wickedness or iniquity, depending on the translation. All I can say to you, then in true contradistinction to all of that, when we're talking about trying to achieve excellence and purity morally, ethically, and religiously. No wonder Jesus would make the statement, as he does in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in these areas. Brings us to our last point that we've got to sum up here, and that is excellence, not only in attitude and purity, but in sacrifice. And when we talk about it, let's make it and understand that what living sacrifice is. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul writing to those brethren says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And he would go on to say in verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's an attitude, phrenale, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, excellence and commitment is seen when we present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices. This is our, as one translation says, reasonable service of worship. When we are committed to Christ, brethren, when we're committed to Christ above everything else that's going on in our lives, but committed to Christ and establish the proper priorities, that's, that's when we please God. That's when we please God. That's when we come to terms with that. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, that no man can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one, love the other. He'll be devoted to one, despise the other. You can't serve God in mammon. You can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in anything else, not simultaneously. I think one of the greatest examples of this is seen certainly in 
one that we're familiar with in Matthew chapter 19, by the way. And remember that young man comes up to Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 16. And he came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What a great question. What must I do to have eternal life? Uh, you know, I, I say this all the time. I, I love it when somebody comes up and says, Hey, Brent, could you tell me what i got to do to have eternal life? Man, if we can have a good biblical serious discussion about that, I'll, I'll take that question every day in that discussion, right? But we look at this individual, and, and he asks, and of course Jesus, you know, he talks about what is good. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is, is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. Young Jewish individual had done quite well, and he knows what the commandments were. And he said, well, which ones? And Jesus said, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. And the young man said, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? Oh boy, be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask for. I would submit to you that when you look at this, when he says, all these things I've done since I was a youngster, what I still lack. You know what he did? He wasn't a murderer, he wasn't an adulterer. Evidently, he honored, respected, loved, and probably even provided for his mother and father. That's all good stuff, very good stuff. But what do I still lack? And when Jesus really put it to him, and he says, well, if you would be perfect, there's that concept again of mature and complete. Go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. I'll tell you, when the rubber hits the road, and it did there, this man did what? He went away very discouraged about this whole thing, sorrowful because he had great possessions. I would submit for your consideration that all that he had done religiously, he did by virtue, by way of convenience, not conviction. He did what was convenient. But the moment that there was sacrifice involved, I want to tell you, he said, that's not for me. That's not excellence, and certainly not excellence is a living sacrifice. We look at this, and it can, it's got to be conviction, not convenience. We have to have these priorities in our life. When we're committed to Christ above everything else, what did Jesus say in Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. To what extent in Revelation 2.10, even to the point, even to death, you know, that can be looked at until death or to the point of death. Even to the point of death, and there were plenty of faithful Christians that experienced martyrdom because of that kind of faith. And our commitment is to be to the extent of which the Apostle Paul highlighted in 2 Timothy 1.12 that we spoke about yesterday and even sang about in the course of the song when he says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know, this was Friday night, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Brethren, I just got to say to you in closing this, we've got to wrap this up. And I'm going to bring this out again in the third lesson today, but complacency, complacency is a malignancy that will eventually devour the soul. Too many people are majoring in convenience and minoring in conviction and kind of a good enough religion and a convenient discipleship that will never get it. And this was the problem of that rich young ruler who said, what do I still lack? Well, how about excellence in commitment? And so may we excel 
May we excel in a variety of human endeavors in this life. But I'll tell you what, do well in your job and do well in the things that you enjoy your recreation. Do well in your education. Oh, seek to excel. But may we truly seek to excel as disciples of Christ, as Christians, as members of the body of Christ. And may we be faithful, yes, until death, to death, whatever it takes. And the Lord says, and I will give you the crown of life. This is what we must strive for. And to look at our own personal potential as Christians. Especially when we think about the one, the one who died for us and gave his all. Commitment and excellence. And I thank you for your good attention. Thank you very, very much.